Thank you, Stephen. Thank you, team. Well, good morning, church. How are you? Good. It is good to see you this morning. Glad that we get a chance to worship together. Uh, listen, before we jump in, there is quite a bit going on that we'd love for you to join with us in prayer about. Uh, we mentioned this last week, but our Ensenada team is actually out. They left yesterday, so we've got close to 60 of our folks who are out on the mission field, who are serving, sharing the gospel, but also building uh, homes for those who do not have them. So we'll be praying for them as they'll be working all this week. Uh, secondly, we've got our kids who've been out at kids camp all week. Some of you might be here, so you can pick them up uh, at the end of today. Please do that. Uh, and don't leave them, right? Uh, so, but they, listen, I hope that we'll be praying about all the things that they experience. I pray that they come back with a fire and a new walk with the Lord. We're excited uh, about that. Uh, and actually, I had a, a chance this week uh, to be out at a student life camp. So I got to see some of the things that the students experienced a few weeks ago, but uh, got to be preaching out there in Colorado all week, which was awesome. And I'm thrilled to report we saw a ton of students give their lives to the Lord and become believers in Jesus Christ for the very first time, uh, which is super exciting. Um, and on top of that, equally as exciting, on the last night of camp, saw a lot of students uh, respond to a call to ministry. And so those are conversations that will begin, but we need a brand new generation of ministers to rise up. And so it's awesome to be able to see some of that happening. But uh, listen, anytime I get the chance to go out and preach somewhere else, I am an extension of this church and the ministry here. Uh, and so I thank you for having that opportunity to do that, but I also wanna make sure you guys get to share in those blessings uh, and seeing what the Lord is doing. So please be praying for those students as they're all uh, home and heading back to their churches. But grab your Bibles, if you will. Let's go to Daniel chapter 5, which is where we're going to be today. Daniel chapter 5, as we continue our series called Steadfast. We are walking through this book, recognizing that the only solid and secure place in this world is to stand upon the Lord. In the midst of changing culture and changing circumstances, the Lord alone remains steadfast. And so we also can be steadfast when we don't base our lives on ourselves or our circumstances or the culture. Instead, we root ourselves in the one true God, in Jesus Christ. Okay, this is how we have stability in our lives as well. Daniel chapter 5 is where we're going to start in just a second. While you're returning there, we just mentioned uh, our kids. Our kids are in the room. We got a lot of younger folks in the room. Welcome yet again. Glad you guys are with us in worship. Uh, and listen, when you grow up, it is invariable that you are going to mess up, right? Kids, you understand this. Every now and then you get in trouble, it happens, right? You're learning, you're growing. Sometimes you make mistakes and sometimes you get in trouble. Uh, and usually that's not too bad. I mean, it might be, you know, upsetting or you might have broken something. Uh, but if you hear this one phrase, you instantly know that it's worse than usual. Sometimes when you get in trouble, mom and dad are going to find out about this. And if you hear this, you, you know you're in for it, and it's this. You know better than that. You ever hear that? Did you remember hearing that phrase? Well, you do something wrong, it says, you know better than that. If you hear that, oh, it's on, right? You're not getting off with a light sentence now. Why? Because you clearly did not stumble into this. This was not a first-time offense. This was not simply an honest mistake that you stumbled into. You have been told before. You knew what you were doing, and you did it anyways, right? And when we have a mistake like that, that's when the punishment really kind of ratchets up a little bit, right? And you never want to hear that. Well, kids, I, I hate to tell you this. This does not stop when you're kids. Sometimes, even as adults, we make mistakes. And sometimes those are innocent, sometimes we're learning, and then sometimes, sadly, what we end up hearing is this, you know better than that. 
But the trick is, is the older that we get, the consequences are magnified. And we have to be very aware of what we're doing because when we willfully step into these things, a worse judgment can occur. Uh, In Daniel chapter 5, we're continuing our journey with Daniel and his friends. If you haven't been with us, uh, Daniel and his young friends grew up as young men in Israel, but when they were teenagers, they were kidnapped and taken into Babylon, along with a lot of other people from their nation. And this is where they have spent their entire lives. But they made a choice early on to say, I am not going to become like the culture. Instead, I'm going to hold on to my faith in the Lord, in Yahweh, the one true God. And because of that, God has blessed them, put them in high positions of authority throughout the empire of Babylon. Daniel has been centered at the center of power in Babylon itself, right there at the capital city. But this has been going on for a long time. When we started back in Daniel 1, these guys were teenagers. By the time we get to chapter 5, Daniel is pushing 80 years old. He is an old man. A good 20 years has passed, even from last week, if you were here last Sunday with us, another 20 years has passed between chapter four and chapter five. And so Daniel has spent almost the entirety of his life here in Babylon, but that entire time he has held on to his faith in Jesus Christ. And now one of the things that was prophesied through him back in chapter two, the end of the Babylonian empire is about to occur. Today, we're going to meet a guy named Belshazzar, and Belshazzar is the last king of Babylon. He is the last ruler in the Babylonian empire, and after this, the Persian empire is going to rise to ascendancy. Now, before we read the chapter, uh, we need to talk a little bit about Belshazzar. He's an interesting figure. Uh, If you look in the extra-biblical historical sources, we have a record of all the Babylonian kings, and Belshazzar is nowhere to be listed. You just don't see his name anywhere at all. Not out of order, just not there at all. The last king of Babylon is a guy named Nabonidus. And so for centuries, people thought that this was just one of the places where the Bible got it wrong. He just, the writer got it wrong. He didn't know what he was talking about. He got the history wrong. And this is not an accurate historical record. Well, in the past hundred years, we've had more discoveries where we found out there is a Belshazzar and we know exactly who he is. Belshazzar is the son of Nabonidus. And you say, well, you just said he is the last king. That's true. But Nabonidus fled the city and he was away from the capital for well over a decade. And he leaves his son, Belshazzar, in command there in the capital city. So he is co-regent with his father. And for all intents and purposes, for well over a decade, he has been the ruler of Babylon and certainly there in the capital city. And so we now know the Bible actually was was right in how it talked about this. Even though he's not the official king of Babylon, he, by all rights and purposes, is the king of Babylon here at the very end of the empire. But let's see what happens to him here in his last days. Verse 1 of chapter 5. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, and that the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. 
Then the king's color changed, and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way, and his knees knocked together. The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the the Chaldeans, and the astrologers. And the king declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed and his color changed and his lords were perplexed. The queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banqueting hall and the queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers, because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation. Then Daniel was brought in before the king, and the king answered and said to Daniel, You are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom my father, the, my, who, the king, my father, brought from Judah. I have heard of you that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in before me to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation, but they couldn't show the interpretation of the matter. But I have heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be third ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed, and whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up, and whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind and his mind was made like that of a beast and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox and his body was wet with the dew of heaven until he knew that the most high God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this, but you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven, and the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords, your wives, and your concubines have drunk wine from them, and you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath, and in, who, in, uh, and who's in all your ways you have not honored. Let's stop right there. Yikes. Daniel got ornery in his old age. He's going to get bold in front of the king. This is just a different tone that he takes with Belshazzar than what he took decades earlier with King Nebuchadnezzar. So what is happening here is, is you've got this huge banquet that's being thrown by Belshazzar and in the middle of it, while he is toasting all of these people, and, and, and lifting up uh, to false gods the, the very implements that were used in the temple of Yahweh, 
you see a disembodied hand, a ghostly hand appear and start writing on the wall. You've ever heard the phrase, the handwriting's on the wall. It comes from this passage. And so he sees this and it's clearly an apparition. This is clearly supernatural and he clearly freaks out. He calls in everybody. Nobody can interpret this. But as we have seen all through the book of Daniel, God has given Daniel a special gift. He speaks interpretations through Daniel. And so Daniel is finally called in to interpret it. And we're gonna look at what is written on the wall and the interpretation in just a moment. But why the different tone? He says almost the exact same thing to Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar is filled with pride. And so God gives him a dream. We got the recap right here in chapter five of all the things that happened in chapter four. But when Daniel gives that interpretation, he's moved. He's concerned. He says, oh, King Nebuchadnezzar, please repent of your ways. Please turn away from what you were doing. Honor the Lord so that this doesn't befall you. He's encouraging. He's trying to be merciful to him. And sure enough, God will be merciful to Nebuchadnezzar when he turns to the Lord. But here we see something very different. Daniel comes in and just speaks a judgment upon him. He said, there's no room for repentance. There's no room. This is just the judgment of God that has come now upon Belshazzar. And you say, well, why is that? If both of them deal with pride, what's the difference here? Well, there are some differences between these people. There, there are three things that Belshazzar has done to earn this doom upon him. The first is his pride. Uh, look at verse 22 and look what it says. It says, and you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this, but you lifted yourself up against the Lord of heaven. He is being incredibly prideful. Now, we can actually see this in a lot of different ways here in the text. The first uh, is that you see this in the use of the term uh, Nebuchadnezzar. His name shows up a lot in this passage. And specifically, he's called Belshazzar's father. Now, I said just a moment ago that that's not actually his father. His biological father is a guy named Nabonidus. In fact, there have been a few different kings, short-lived kings in between Nebuchadnezzar's death and now the reign of Nabonidus and Belshazzar. So how come the Bible keeps saying, your father, Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar, your father? Well, Nebuchadnezzar casts a really long shadow. He is the greatest king ever served in Babylon. He had earned this amazing reputation and all the kings thereafter are trying to live up to that. And so he is the son of Nebuchadnezzar because he's in the line of these kings and Belshazzar desperately wants to be as good or better than Nebuchadnezzar. He, although he doesn't have anything to show for it, Nebuchadnezzar built all of these things. He conquered all of these lands and Belshazzar has done none of this and it is galling to him, which is most likely why he chose to get these specific relics to use for his party. You see, Nebuchadnezzar did a lot of different things, but I can guarantee you one thing he almost never did was that he was not going to go and use the implements from the temple of Yahweh in a sacrilegious manner. At the end of last chapter, we saw Nebuchadnezzar honored Yahweh. He honored the God of heaven. He was humbled and he bowed the knee to the God of heaven. He would never have touched these particular relics. And so Belshazzar seizes upon that and says, I'm gonna do the thing that Nebuchadnezzar would never do. You think he's so great? Well, I'm greater than him. He wouldn't antagonize this God at all, but I'll take those implements and I'll use them like my solo cups. I'll use them as just my, my, my party platters. 
That's how great I am. He is doing his best to try to eclipse Nebuchadnezzar in any way he can, which is why he's done this. Third way we see pride here is that he's throwing a party on the eve of his own destruction. Two weeks prior to this, Nabonidus and the Babylonian army had been defeated by the Persians. They are out there somewhere and making their way to Babylon, and he knows this. He doesn't know where the army is, but he knows they're coming. He knows his father, who is not dead, has been defeated. The army has been defeated. He's got no full defenses. And so what does he do with an army bearing down on him? He throws a party. Invite everybody, get all these lords together, and I want them to see just how in control I am, just how powerful I am. I'm gonna get them all drunk so that they think I'm great. And so in the midst of all of this bearing down upon him, he just wants to throw a party in the middle of it. Middle of it. This is a stunning act of hubris. But then there's how he deals with Daniel. Did you catch how he talked to Daniel. If you read it quickly, it might sound like he's being at least some ways deferential to Daniel, but he's not. When Daniel comes in, he talks to him and says, are you one of those exiles from Judah? This is a man who has faithfully served the Babylonian empire for over 50 years. He's 80. This is, a, or older than that possibly. This is a man who deserves respect. Furthermore, he is a former head of the magicians, head of all the wise men. At the very least, there ought to be some, some modicum, some, some, some semblance of respect. And instead, when he calls Daniel in, he says, you're one of those, those Jewish boys, aren't you? You're one of those exiles, those people we conquered, and you're in here right now. It's almost as he's saying, know your place, boy. Remember who you are. You're not one of us. He's trying to assert his dominance. He's trying to assert his lordship over the venerable Daniel. But here's the worst part of all. Look at verse 22. It says, and you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this. Daniel reminds him about Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar the Great. Nebuchadnezzar who puts everybody, all these other uh, kings in the shade. That king humbled his heart before Yahweh. That king was humbled before the one true God, the God most high. And this is not the first time that Belshazzar has heard this. He said, you knew this. You've heard this story. You are well aware of what happened with Nebuchadnezzar and you just ignored this. You know better than that. This is not an innocent mistake. This is not him stumbling uh, into some, uh, some problem. He has done this on purpose and therefore the judgment of God is going to come down upon him. But he adds more to it. On top of his pride, he adds sacrilege. Look at verse 23. But you have lifted yourself up against the Lord of heaven and the vessels of his house have been brought in before you and you, your lords, your wives, and your concubines have drunk wine from them. To serve all of his people, he makes a deliberate choice to say, I want to go use the very special implements that were reserved for the holy of holies, that were reserved for the service of a deity. I want those. Go get those and bring those in. This is not an innocent mistake. This is not as if he threw a party and said, man, we ain't got a thousand goblets. Where are we going to get goblets? Man, go rummaging around. Find me some goblets. Don't care where they are. And they just looked in a closet, found these, and happened to use them. No, he's done this on purpose. He has chosen to thumb his nose at the God of heaven. 
He said, you reserve this for the, for the use of a God. Well, I'm better than that. I'm going to have those here for my party. It's an act of pride. It's an act of arrogance that he wants to do this. It is a purposeful act of sacrilege. And then in addition to that, there's idolatry. Look at the end of verse 23. Not only did they drink in them, but also you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways you have not honored. He says, you didn't just use these things, you used them to toast dead idols. Idols that are made of gold and silver. You're gonna lift up a cup of gold and silver. It's the same material. These gods can't help you. They don't move, they don't act, they don't speak, they don't do anything. And you're gonna honor them instead of the one true God. This is idolatry. This is purposefully worshiping created things instead of worshiping the creator. And so there is pride, there is sacrilege, there is idolatry, and therefore God will bring a judgment upon him. The words that are written here on the wall are literally his doom. Spoiler alert, Belshazzar is not going to make it through the end of the chapter. He'll be dead before we're done. He's not going to make it through the night. This is God declaring his judgment on him. He says, this is what you've done. And here is now the righteous recompense for what you have done. You are done. The empire is done. The most high God will not be mocked. Which is something we ought all to remember. Look at Galatians 6, 7. Look what it says here. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. A man reaps what he sows. This is New Testament. This is what God still says to us. He says, do not be deceived. You cannot mock God and get away with it. Whatever you sow, that's what you're going to reap. And what God says is that when you sow into sin, when you sow into unrighteousness, you are going to reap judgment. Because sin is no small matter to the Lord. It is no small matter to him. And so God brings down judgment upon Belshazzar and upon the entire Babylonian empire. Now let's talk about that word judgment for just a second because it makes us uncomfortable. We don't like to talk about judgment, do we not? We don't like it. It sounds too, I don't know, judgy, right? And that's just not a fun thing. Like, that's like cardinal sin in our culture. Don't judge me. You can't judge anybody. Don't judge anything. We don't, the idea of judgment is just anathema in our culture. It violates a core value of our culture that we are islands unto ourselves. That, that no one can judge us. I don't get to judge you, but you cannot judge me. No one can judge me. I determine right and wrong. I determine everything about my life. I do all things for me and no one gets to judge me. So the very concept of judgment is in some ways offensive to us. But this is something God reserves the right to. He says, I am going to bring judgment. We need to think about this. Now, let's be very specific in what we're talking about because, listen, bad things are going to happen to us and not every bad thing is a judgment. Not every evil thing that happens to us in our life is a judgment. Think about just the last few chapters of what has happened. Back in chapter three, we saw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They got thrown into a fiery furnace. Now, God brought them out of the fiery furnace and God saved them. But you got to imagine that was a traumatic experience, right? I'd have some nightmares after that. I really would. 
but they didn't deserve that. They didn't do anything wrong. This was not a punishment in any sense. This was not judgment. That was just tribulation. It was a trial. And we're all going to go through this. Sometimes you and I are going to go through evil things in our life and we don't deserve it. It's just part and parcel of living in a broken world. Bad things are going to happen. This is not a judgment of God. It is simply tribulation. It is trial. Then in chapter four, last week, we saw Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar was also proud. And so God does something to him. He makes him insane for a time. He literally loses his mind but not completely because he's able to make a choice to say, okay, I see now there is a God who is in heaven. The most high rules. And as soon as he does so, God restores him back to power. This also is not judgment. This is discipline. How do we know that? Because there's a purpose in it. When God does this to Nebuchadnezzar, he says, I'm doing this for a reason so that you will know that there's a God in heaven, so that you will know that the most high rules. You see, there's a purpose in it. It's discipline. It wasn't to hurt, it was to heal. Kids, this is why parents discipline you. It is not because they hate you. They're trying to hurt you. When you get disciplined, this is to help you. It is to turn us away from the paths of destruction and turn us towards the paths of life. We all need discipline in our life. But this isn't a punishment. This isn't a a retribution. It is discipline. The purpose is to heal. But what we see in chapter five is different. What we see here is judgment. God is saying, you have done this, and now here is the righteous recompense for what you have done. I have judged you, and now here are the consequences of your actions. And God says, I am going to do this for everyone. Now, when it comes to judgment, there are two things we all must know. There are two things we all must bear in mind when it comes to judgment. The first one is this, we are not to judge one another. We are commanded by Scripture, and it is everywhere. We are not to judge one another. That is not our place. I am not to judge you, and you are not to judge me. Again, this is everywhere in Scripture. Let me show you a couple of them. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5. It says, Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from the Lord. All right, so look what he's saying here. He says, man, don't judge because you don't have all the facts. You and I can't judge because we don't know everything. We don't see what's really going on. Something might look amazing, but it's actually not. People have terrible motives. Or something might look bad, but we've misinterpreted it. We don't see the truth of what's really going on. And so it's not our place to judge one another. It's not our place to judge because we don't understand that. We don't have the kind of knowledge to be able to do that. So when you hear people who say, I know what God's doing, or I know why this happened in somebody's life, this thing happened, and this is what this means. Okay, just, just, just move along. The next time Pat Robertson says that the reason a hurricane hits, the, hits America is because it's a judgment on our nation, just turn the channel. He has no idea what he's talking about. Because we don't get that kind of knowledge. We don't get to speak for the most high. Like this is why. We are terrible interpreters of why bad things happen to us. 
We're bad interpreters when it comes to other people. We're bad interpreters when it comes to ourselves. Rarely in the moment do we understand what is happening. When bad things happen, it might be tribulation. It might be discipline. It might be judgment. But in the moment, we very rarely have a very clear sense of what that is. So he says, don't do that. Go to Romans chapter 14, verses 4 and 10. Two different verses here. It says, who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls and he will be upheld for the Lord is able to make him stand. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. He says, so don't judge. We're not to judge one another. There's going to be a judgment, but we'll stand before him. But you and I are not to judge one another. So when bad things happen, either to us or to other people, we need to be very careful about trying to interpret that as to what that actually means. Now, we we could get down in the weeds on this, but let me also be very clear. This does not mean that we don't call sin, sin. That's not judgment. That's just stating the facts. There are places where scripture is very clear. It says, this is right and this is wrong. If you do the thing that is wrong for me to say, that is wrong, that is not judgment. That is just the fact of the matter. It just is. Scripture tells us, this is what I say. It is not judging someone in this condemnation kind of sense, but it is more than fine to say, no, 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 the Bible clearly says this is wrong. This is wrong. We don't apologize for that. We go, oh, well, maybe it's right for you. Oh, well, I'm not to judge. No, no, no. We can call a spade a spade, but I don't get to say this is God's condemnation, his declaration about you. I don't have any right to do that, and neither do you. So the first thing is this. We don't ever judge others. But here's the second thing. We will all be judged by the Lord. We will all be judged by the Lord. Now look, everybody loves the first point. Nobody loves the second point. We love the first point. Don't judge. Don't judge. And that's true. Don't judge. But we like to take it a step farther. Don't judge me. That's what we really mean. Don't judge me. No one can judge me. No one ever can judge me. And once we step into that realm, okay, now we have an issue because we're basically saying, no, I determine right and wrong and nobody gets to tell me whether what I did was good or bad. I make all those decisions for myself and that is actually not true because there's going to come a day when you and I are gonna stand before the judgment seat of God Almighty and we will have to give an account of everything that we have done. Let that sink in. There is coming a day for every single one of us where we will stand before the holy God of the universe who is perfect and righteous, who gives no partiality or favoritism, and in the harsh, unsparing light of holiness, we will have to show everything we've said or done. And it's not even just gonna be a record of what we've done. All of our motives and why we did it is also going to be revealed. That day of judgment is coming for every single one of us and we don't get to avoid it. Please don't assume that simply because we cannot judge others means that we don't actually, that there's not actually going to be any sort of judgment. He said, Adam, I don't like thinking about that. I love thinking about how God loves me and how God forgives me. I don't like to think about the fact that God judges, but you have to. Do you know why? Because our God is not simply merciful and loving. He's also holy. He is a holy, righteous God. There is no sin in him. Therefore, he cannot countenance sin. Sin cannot be near him. This is why Adam and Eve couldn't stay in the garden. 
He loves Adam and Eve. He continues to chase Adam and Eve, but they cannot stay in his presence because he is holy. This is why nobody could just traipse into the holy of holies. Why? Because God is holy. There had to be some separation between him and the people. This is why nobody could look upon the Lord in all of his fullness and live. You would be obliterated. Why? Because he is holy and we are not. We serve a holy, righteous, perfect God. And when you and I bring ourselves as is before him, it is right for him to bring judgment and to say, this is who I am. This is who you are. And this is what is happening now for Belshazzar. He has lifted himself up against the Lord and the Lord is now gonna say, here then is your judgment. Let's read the judgment, by the way. Go back to verse 24. It says, then from the presence, the hand was sent. And the writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed. Mene, Mene, Tekel, and Parson. This is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Stop right there. There is a lot here and we could dive in for a really long time looking at this, but here's kind of the basics of what is happening. Uh, in Hebrew and Aramaic, those are two languages that are very similar together. This is actually Aramaic is what's written here. In Hebrew and Aramaic, you don't get the vowels in the language. You just get the consonants. And then based on the way the, vowel, the, the consonants are put together and sometimes with the pointing, it tells you which vowels to put in. But that, you have to kind of figure it out. If you've ever seen like a, like a car license plate where they've just got a couple of letters there, but they didn't put the vowels in, you're trying to figure out what's that saying? And you're trying to, you're trying to puzzle it out. That's kind of like Hebrew and Aramaic. You kind of have to figure out what it's saying. Well, what Daniel has done here is he's kind of unraveling multiple layers of almost like a, like a puzzle or a riddle that's sitting here. So you've got three sets of continents, three different Hebrew words that Daniel is now going to explain. The first layer of interpretation is this. He relates it to money. So mene would uh, be likened to a mina. That's a, a unit of money. Tekel is another way of saying shekel, which is a unit of money. Uh, and then parson would be half or a half shekel. All right, so you've got a mina, which is made up of 60 shekels, and which goes down to a half shekel. So you're going from larger to smaller. So almost like an hourglass, you're seeing the things dwindle. You're seeing it reduced in value. You've got three words that are descending in value. But then if you put different vowels in there, you also get different words. So mene uh, would be a word that means uh, numbered. And so he says, your days are numbered. Tekel sounds like a word that means uh, weighed. You have been weighed in the scales and found wanting. And then parson sounds like, oh, actually for Perez, because you can put different things in there, uh, means uh, divided. Your kingdom is now going to be divided between the Medes and the Persians. Third level of interpretation, that last word, parson, sounds like the word Persian, which is exactly the group of people that it's going to be given to. So there's just a lot going on here. There's like a code thing that is happening. This is why they couldn't interpret it. Daniel comes in with this godly interpretation of him, but the result is clear. You're done. Your kingdom is over. God has judged you. He has judged you in a faulty manner. You're done. Your kingdom is done your life is done. And that's exactly what happens. Look at the next few verses. Verse 29. 
Then Belshazzar gave the command and Daniel was clothed with purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler of the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. Belshazzar doesn't last the night. What history tells us is this. It was a fairly bloodless coup. Uh, The Persian army does not come in and attack Babylon outright. Uh, They send people, they stay outside the city. They divert part of the river which dries up a waterway, which allows them to get underneath the capital building. They move a team in, they come in, assassinate the king, and everything's done. History also tells us that this happened while a major banquet was happening in the midst of what was going on, exactly like Scripture tells us. And so God gives his judgment, and now the Babylonian empire is done. Now, reading this, you might say, Adam, that is terrible. That guy sounds horrible. Good news, I would never act like him. I would never do that. I would never break into the church and get all the communion stuff out and toss them around like Frisbees or put weird drinks in them and pass them around with all my friends. I would never do anything so crazy as that. So I think I'm in pretty good shape that I'm not gonna befall or have the same fate befall me. But we need to be really careful. This is here for our instruction. This is here for our discipline, our edification. And we need to ask ourselves some very serious questions. Is this actually us? Ask yourself this question, is there any place in my life where I am making room for pride, sacrilege, or idolatry? Well, no, that sounds terrible. I don't do any of that stuff. Think it through. Is there any place in our life where we are leaving room for pride, sacrilege, or idolatry? Is there any place in life where you look at the Lord and say, I know better than you? Because that's pride. Is there any place in life where we're making room for sin? We know it's sinful. We know what scripture says. And we're just going, yeah, but for me, it's okay. I mean, I know for other people, maybe earlier in my life, but, but now, you know, things are different. This is gonna be fine for me now. And we kind of twist ourselves into a way where we're thinking, no, 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 this is right for me. I know what God says, but, but he just, he's not as advanced as we are. He, he's not as, as tolerant as we are. He doesn't know as much as, as we are. Do you hear it? I, I just don't think God knows as much as I do. I think I know better than God. That's the line we don't say out loud, Right? We never get to that one, but by our actions, this is what we do. When we look at sin, and instead of calling it sin, we we call it something else, and we make room for it in our lives. We start compromising. We start making a place for this. And all of a sudden, this begins to take root in us. Why would we think we know better than the Lord? Why would we think that we have outwitted him? Is there any place in your life where you're giving sin a pass? or you're just allowing it to sit in your life unchallenged, unexamined. We just let it sit there. Okay, that is pride. It is at the root of every single sin. If you dig down long enough, you're gonna find this thing that says, yeah, but I wanna do what I want. I want it my way. I don't wanna have to deal with that. I wanna make up the rules. I wanna make up all the things for myself. I don't want anybody to tell me what to do. And at the end of that, that's pride. Is there any place you're just giving sin a pass? Or maybe it's not sin, maybe, or maybe it's not pride, maybe it's idolatry. Or have you allowed this thing in our lives to take precedence and priority over the Lord? It started out as a good thing. It might be a very good thing, but somewhere along the way, it stopped being a good thing and it became the thing. 
The thing that now determines everything in my life. The thing that determines what I do. Even if it means putting God on the back burner. Even if it means kind of not doing exactly what God says or or listening to him because this is now all important. This thing, this action, this possession, this whatever else it is. Even if it started out good, it has now become an idol to which I give full allegiance and God has to take second place. God, you can have third place in my kingdom. But this thing has got to be first. Okay, that's idolatry. Is there anything in our lives that we're lifting up to say, no, this is most important in our lives. It is for these very things that God brings judgment. Because you see, he can say the same things to us that he did to Belshazzar. It's hard to recognize, but guess what? Our days are numbered. Did you know that? Tech y'all, our, our days are numbered. You ever heard that phrase? Your days are numbered. It comes right here out of scripture, but it's actually true. We we all know this to be true, but we want that to be so far in the future. There's no sense in worrying about it right now. And so we have so many days left. It doesn't even matter to, to number them, but we need to remember we only have a certain amount of days and God knows about all of them and you have zero power to add to it. You have zero power to save yourself. You cannot stave off death. Sooner or later, it will come for all of us. Our days are numbered. And then here's the final thing. We have all been weighed in the scales and found wanting. That's not just true of Belshazzar. That's true of me. It's also true of you. How do I know this? For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The standard of righteousness that God has to be able to dwell in his holy hill is utter perfection. And I just don't make that cut. And neither do you. There's not a person in this room. There's not a person in this congregation. There's not a person in this world who can say, I deserve to stand in God's presence because I'm such a good person and I've done so many good things. I deserve to be in God's presence. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And if you and I demand to stand before the Lord on our own merits, we will fail. And we will find a very similar judgment leveled on us. We do not want to see the courtroom where we have to reveal everything that's ever been in our hearts and then meet the standard of perfection. It just won't happen. And that day of judgment is coming. Why would we want to stand on our own? Why would you want to stand on your own merits? Why would you want to say, no, 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 I'm an island unto myself. I do all things. No one can judge me. I I make up everything for myself. Why would you want to stand on our own merits when you know that we're going to have to stand before a holy, righteous God and give account of everything that we have done? Because if we do, there's only one thing waiting for us and it's hell. Which P.S., there's another word we don't like talking about, right? Can't talk about that in today's culture. Oh, Adam, that sounds super judgy. You're going crazy today. Well, here's the thing. I like the God who forgives. I like the God who loves. Just this whole concept of hell just makes me uncomfortable. Do you realize that the only reason hell exists is because people choose it? No one would do that. No one would ever choose hell. Here's the thing. When you and I look at God and say, I want to be in the place where you are not, that place has a name. It's called hell. I want to be in the place where you're not in control. I want to be in the place where I make the rules. I want to be in the place where I get to do whatever I want by my own power, but I don't want you there. I don't want you to be in control. I don't want to bow the knee to you. C.S. Lewis in The Great Divorce would say this. The only reason there is a hell is because people choose it. There could be no hell without that choice. 
And we do this all the time when we, like Belshazzar, lift ourselves up and say, I refuse to bow the knee to you. I will make up my own rules. I will do my own thing. I will try to save myself. And when you and I play that game, we will inevitably fail. But praise be to God, you don't have to fear judgment day. You see, the same God who is holy, the same God who will judge us all on judgment day is also the very same God who loves you. He's the same God who cares for you, who made you and has made a way to bring you back, who has made a way for us to know him. You see, he looked at our lives. He sees where we are. He has numbered our days. He knows what happens at the end of them. He knows there's nothing we can do to fix it. And so instead of leaving us to our own devices, no, he's going to send his very son, Jesus Christ, to save us. When Jesus Christ comes, he lives a life not to show us how it's done, not to say, now, do better, be better. You can do it like this. And maybe if you do enough, you'll be good enough to get in. He says, no, I'm gonna do this for you. And at the end of my life, instead of getting what I deserve, I'm gonna go to the cross. And when Jesus Christ goes to the cross, do you know what he's doing? He's taking the very judgment of God upon himself. The judgment that you deserve, the judgment that I deserve when I am heading towards my doom, my judgment day, Jesus Christ jumps in front and with his cross, he takes all the judgment of God that I deserve upon himself. And why does he do this? Because he loves me like he loves you. And after he dies and rises again, he doesn't say, see, I can do it. Why can't you do it? He says, listen, you'll never do it. How about I just give you my righteousness? And instead of trying to stand on what I have done or not done, I just get to wear the righteousness of Christ, the righteousness I did not earn, the righteousness I don't deserve, I will never deserve. I, by the grace of God, get to stand knowing that the judgment has already passed. I don't have to fear my judgment because all the judgment I deserve has already been taken upon Jesus Christ. There's none left for me. I don't know when my death is coming. I hope it's a long way in the future. I don't know how many days I got left. I hope there's a ton of them, but I don't have to fear what happens at the end. I don't fear the judgment because I wear the very righteousness of Christ. When we surrender our lives to him, when we give up this fool's errand of trying to be lords unto ourselves, and instead we surrender to the Lord, we are given a salvation that can never be taken away from us. I am counted as righteous before the Lord, and you can too you can experience the very same thing. Look what it says in Hebrews. Hebrews chapter nine, verses 27 and 28. It says, and just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. You see, if you don't know Jesus Christ, I bet you're not eagerly waiting for him to return. You're hoping he stays as long gone as possible. But when you know Jesus Christ, you can eagerly await his return because my Savior is not coming to me in judgment. My Savior is coming to save me and take me to be with him forever and no one can snatch me out of his hand. I have zero fear of my future when I live in the grace of Jesus Christ. Why would we not in humility, bow the knee and say, God, you are right and I am wrong and receive forgiveness 
acceptance and eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. So do this for me. Bow your heads and close your eyes for just a moment. Worship team is going to come and lead us in a hymn as we close. It's a hymn packed with meaning. It'd be wonderful for us to meditate upon it, but even before we begin that, with heads bowed and eyes closed, can we just just ask some honest questions of ourselves? Is there any place in my life where I'm just giving sin a pass? Where I've somehow assumed that I know better than the Lord? That I've got it all figured out instead of living in surrender and humility before our King? Some of you might be scared. You say, Adam, man, I'm reading this today. This guy got a, a judgment and then it was over. Here's the great news. That guy had gotten lots of chances, lots of them. He knew better. The Lord had been after him. He just wouldn't listen. But right now, if you're hearing my voice, here's what that means. God's still reaching out to you. He's still trying to get your attention. He's still leaving the door open. He's still inviting you. He's still chasing you by his Holy Spirit. He's still loves you, why would we not respond to him today? And so if the Holy Spirit is convicting you this morning of anything, you don't have to tell me, you don't have to tell anybody, could could we come before the Lord and simply say, God, I am sorry, I confess. I give this to you. I give this to you. Is there any place where idolatry has stolen away our heart from before the Lord and we say, God, you and you alone are worthy. I choose you above all the things of this world. What if today, Instead of being like Belshazzar who stubbornly held on until his destruction, what if we instead bowed the knee and say, Jesus, thank you. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you that no matter who I am or what I have done, I cannot exhaust the riches of your mercy and grace. I just confess and repent and surrender to you and let the Holy Spirit draw you close that you might experience anew the eternal life he made you for. And so, Father, help us. Father, I pray for anybody here today who does not know you, who's been playing the game and trying to ignore you. And Lord, yet again, you reach out. Yet again, you speak words of invitation. Could today be the day they put their faith in you? Even right now, Father, let them put their faith in you. I say, Lord, I, I, I repent. I repent, I surrender. If you still love me, I repent, I need you. I finally give up. May today be the day they put their faith in you. But for my brothers and sisters, Father, if there be any place where, Lord, we have given into our pride, we've given into our idolatry, Lord, as you bring that to mind, could you help us to lay it down even now? Cleanse us from all unrighteousness as we confess our sins before you and draw us close yet again. But Lord, we, we choose you. And we're so grateful that we don't have to fear our judgment. You've already taken everything. Thank you, Father, for who you are and what you've done. We love you. In your name we pray.